Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Maverick Mondays. I'm your host, Maverick Peters. It is my intention to change your life one Monday at a time. I've had the incredible opportunity to sit down with some pretty fantastic people. The individuals who are successful in what they do or extremely positive minded in the way they live their daily lives, those are the people we will be hearing from on this show. Stay tuned for today's guest. Our guest today, Michael Goldberg, is an attorney here in Cleveland, Ohio. He happens to be very successful at what he does, but that's not the reason we're having him on the show. Something took place a few years back while Michael was on his way to work, something that most people would have overlooked, may have told their coworkers and their family and friends about later, but would not have taken the actions that Michael took. Today we have the privilege to hear from Michael and he's gonna share with us the story and his thoughts and what happened and everything that he's learned from the story. So I'm sitting here with Michael Goldberg. Michael is an attorney and he has a a very interesting story that he's gonna share with us today that I think is real powerful and real inspirational. So Michael, a couple years back, 2006? Yes. In 2006, something happened that not only would most people not have reacted the way you, you reacted, but they would they would have kept going and they would have turned the other way. So what happened in that story? And I want to hear what compelled you to act the way you did. The second part of what compelled me to act the way I did is a good question. I'm not sure, but maybe today we'll figure it out. So as an attorney who works throughout the state, really, but mostly in the northern counties of Ohio, I was traveling from Chardon, where I had a court appearance, to downtown Cleveland, and it was probably about 10 o'clock in the morning. And I was in February, I was driving to downtown Cleveland and uh, doing what I normally do, listening to the radio, thinking about the next case I had to deal with. I was on I-90 just east of Eddy Road, which is an East Cleveland exit. Was traveling in the right-hand lane, which would be the lane you'd be in before you get into the exit lane. But I wasn't exiting, I was going straight. And I heard the squealing of tires and I looked behind me and a car that was a later model, bigger car, like a Buick or some type of larger vehicle crossed behind my car from my left over my left shoulder to over my right shoulder as if it was realizing the driver was realizing right at that moment that he needed to get off at Eddie Road and he had to cut across three lanes of traffic to get there. So. I looked in my rearview mirror, I saw this car pass behind me, then I saw it go off the road. So he literally lost control. He must have hit something or there was a dip. As I was watching this, I'm watching this giant car actually start cartwheeling. Not over its long axis, but over the short, over the short axis, like a, like a smoke on a wheel. I mean, something that looked very violent and very intense. And I saw it in my rearview mirror and I pulled over into the shoulder right by the Eddy Road overpass. It's kind of a scary situation because I pulled over as far as I could to the right and I still only had maybe 18 inches between my door and traffic that was 
coming by very quickly. I saw a couple other cars that had stopped, but I did see that the car that was, was now on fire and nobody was really going down to check on the people in the car. I thought probably somebody was killed because it was really a violent crash. So I got out of the car, waited for traffic to pass, and ran back towards the car, got to the guardrail above where the car was down in the little depression where the trees and small trees and bushes were. And people were on their cell phones and they were calling 911, but nobody was going down to try to help people and people were screaming from inside the car. I did go down there and I think one other person came down with me, followed me down, but I, I went down and I thought I was going to be alone because no one else seemed like they were going to go down there because on TV when cars are on fire they explode. I didn't think that it was going to explode, but I'm sure people probably thought something like that was going to happen. The fire, when it did hit the gas tank, it just built and built and built. By the time the news helicopters came by, there was it was a raging fire. But when I went down there, it wasn't. It was there were there was fire flickering out of places under the engine. The car was basically on its side with the underside facing me at an angle where I could like actually look into the driver's compartment. The person who was driving the car was halfway hanging out of the car, and I got the impression that he had been uh, crushed. His he wasn't wearing a seatbelt, and he had been partially ejected. And I believe the car rolled over on him and he was dead at that time and there was two other people alive and yelling that were in the car so the first thing that i thought of that had to be done was this person who was driving it who was on top of these other two people and blocking the way out had to be removed i grabbed him by he was wearing a hoodie sweatshirt i just grabbed like where the strings to tie the hood would come down standing above his head just kind of dragged him out of the of the window he was a very big guy i was a bigger guy at the time you know he was well over 200 pounds probably like 220 but he was definitely dead and his neck was definitely broken because when i picked him up his his head was hanging at a very odd grotesque angle and it was it was pretty disturbing but there were two people that were alive and so time was definitely of the essence so I moved him out of the way, and there was a woman that was in the car. Another guy had come down, and we had pulled her out, and we carried her up to the guardrail. Police still weren't there. We went back down, and there was a guy who was trapped. I think he had two broken legs, and he was completely under the dashboard of the car. So myself and the other guy that had come down kind of like worked him out and got him out of the car, and at that time, the, the EMS and the police arrived, and, and um, the car, within a minute, was completely engulfed, like a raging fire. I just got in my car and left. I didn't catch the name of the guy that helped me, and I didn't give my name to anybody. I didn't um, talk to the police. Normally, if I would have seen an accident, I would have given my name just to somebody in case they needed to figure out what happened. But there were so many people there and I wasn't the only person that actually saw the accident and I had been involved in pulling the guy out that I really didn't want to get any attention for so I just left I called my wife and she said oh how's your morning and I said I just pulled two people out of a burning car she said what and I kind of told her this story she's like you're in shock you need to come home 
right now. I'm like, no, I got to go to court. I mean, I can't miss work. I did it. I had blood on me. I had mud, I think, on my suit. But I had a change of clothes at the office, so I changed. And I went to court, and by that time, I was about an hour late. So I walked into court, and the judge said, Mr. Goldberg, thank you for joining us today. Where have you been? As a matter of fact, Your Honor, I was out on um, Eddie Road in I-90 pulling people out of a burning car. Um, I thought it was a good excuse for being late for court. And uh, I don't know whether she totally believed me at the time. Your dog but, didn't eat your homework. No. And I, um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't lie to a judge, uh, but... You know, that still sounded like a likely story. It was pretty much um, big news that on TV that night about the wreck. I uh, realized later on in the day that that fire became a very big story. The people being pulled out of the car became a big story. And I started getting calls from the media. The judge had called someone at the plane dealer and told them the story. Apparently after she saw that it was very true, they verified that there was an unknown person involved. There was actually two unknown people, and I told them when they called me, there's another guy that was involved. It wasn't just me. But um, he didn't have to go to court, and he didn't give, give a clue as to who he was. They wanted to do an interview. I didn't want to do that. I didn't really want to speak on the record. I, I, I didn't want to get into a media situation where I was like giving them interviews. It didn't seem like that big of a deal. Uh, watching it on TV, that night with the aerial coverage from helicopters and how big the fire was i'm sure it seemed to people that saw that like it was a like like it was a very heroic thing for somebody to do but truthfully i i didn't think about it that way i thought about it as i just saw people that probably got killed or somebody probably got killed and i was going back just to see if anyone was still alive and the fire was not a fat was not a huge factor at the time. It was the factor. Anytime there's a car with fire, it would be a factor. But I suppose people imagined me or and the other person pulling these people out of this raging fire, and that's not what happened. But it probably seemed like that. So in any event, um, the media really contacted me every day. They um, it was kind of funny because they said, "Who was the mystery guy?" And they did like a silhouette, and it was a silhouette of me. Then they filled me in. And it's Michael Goldberg, downtown That's funny. Cleveland attorney. Eventually, I agreed to at least to be on a phone call. Let them listen in on a phone call where I called one of the people to see how they were doing. And I did that. And, and then after that, they left me alone. Um, and that's basically the story. Uh, the, the most surreal part of the whole thing, the next day, they were interviewing the woman who was pulled out. I was watching it with my wife. They asked her, what would you like to say to the person who pulled you out of the car? And she looked directly at the camera. Thank you for saving me. My kids thank you. My grandkids thank you. And that was a pretty intense moment. I think we kept that on the DVR for about five years and then it got erased. Yeah, so that's what so, happened. That's amazing. So let me ask you a couple questions. When you, when you looked in your mirror and you saw the car flipping over, what was going through your mind? Uh, keep going. Keep driving. Keep going. It's not my problem. It's someone else's problem. It's behind me. Mm-hmm. It's not like it's not like in front of me where you know I'm gonna. It's gonna take me a while to pull over. It's dangerous where that is. People are gonna be rubbernecking. The m- most dangerous thing was probably just getting out of my car and running back because I was so close to the freeway and people are gonna be looking at this this accident and I was I was afraid someone just wouldn't see me. I mean, right. I would get hit. 
So at what point did you decide to pull over? It, it took a second. It wasn't immediate. It didn't, it wasn't a, my, my, my initial reaction was to, my initial thought was to keep going. And that lasted probably a second or two. And then I realized that I probably needed to go back because I didn't think average person, and not that I'm not an average person, but I didn't think the average person was going to run down into that little swale and, and, and check on the people in the car. And I thought that if I didn't do it, maybe nobody would. So that's why I went back. And when you got down to the car and you saw it was there were flames coming from the hood in different spots of the car, so, you know, you said that in the movies, a car on fire explodes mm-hmm. or bursts into flames almost instantly. Mm-hmm. That, that wasn't a fear of yours? Yeah, it was. And, that, and I had to, like, fight the fear of an explosion by just consciously concentrating on that. That's not real. That's not rational. That's not how... Because I've seen enough, enough cases of cars exploding or getting burned up to know that that is almost never the case that there's actually an explosion it's just a fire that builds and builds so my rational self was telling my non-rational self that it's not going to be an explosion the fire is just going to get stronger and stronger once the fuel tank is which was already ruptured is feeding it and once the fire finds the feed the 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 fuel tank um it's just going to get it's going to burn hotter and hotter it's i didn't think it was going to explode but i wasn't 100 percent positive so I was a little bit of, I was afraid and of that, uh, but rationally, I knew that I had a period of minutes to get down there and see what was going on before anything would happen. And then I was also thinking, well, if something does happen, it will probably only hurt for a second. <laughs> right. Do you consider yourself a person, when you're in a fight or flight situation, do you stick around for the fight? I think I'm more on the fight side than flight side. The nature of my work is mostly fight, fighting, most mostly confrontation or a lot of confrontation a, a, a lot of as a lawyer yeah a lot of competing forces and so you have to not be afraid of a conflict and i think physically uh throughout my life i have uh can't remember really backing down even when i should have from a physical situation either with another person or, or a physical challenge, like jumping off of a, a, off of a high cliff into, into a quarry of water at camp when I was a kid, that, that kind of stuff. I, I always kind of did that kind of stuff that was maybe physically frightening. frightening. But um, yeah, situations like that, I mean, I've been in similar situations, I think, where it's none of my business why two people are fighting, why two people are coming to blows, but I've put myself in the middle of it for whatever reason to try to de-escalate the situation or just, just try to get people separated. That's happened more than a few times. And I, you know, I've got some physical uh, confidence. And if the same thing happened again today, I'd probably do the same thing, but I probably wouldn't be as physically able to to do some of it. Um, I don't know if I would have been able to pull the, the guy out at this point just because I'm older and my back hurts worse. And Were you worried then? Like, did that go through your mind at all when you saw how big the, the driver was? Were you worried, oh gosh, maybe I can't pull well, him out of the car? I was already committed. Okay. I mean, I was there. Right. So, you know, and there was another guy there. So, so it wasn't like I had to, do, I did end up pulling him out myself because I remember I grabbed him from both sides of his collar of his sweatshirt. So, and the way he was positioned, 
some of most of his body weight was kind of hanging outside the car so it wasn't like I had to lift him out if he was all the way in the car it definitely would have required two people I think to get him out but he was kind of hanging out so it, he it was not lifting his full weight do you think people today would would react the same or different than you right that was 13 years ago mm -hmm. today if someone saw what you saw they might pull over but they would pull over so they could get a better view with their camera right exactly I mean this was before the first iPhone came out um, before the maybe there was an early smartphone or a Palm Pilot I was using at the time <laughs> or something like that but but you're right people would want to take movies of this and hope that the police were going to come and take care of it I don't know I would I think I like to think I would do the same thing and I think that there's a, a percentage of people that would do what I did and not worry about getting it on their Twitter feed I, at least I hope so Mm -hmm. Throughout the whole thing, once it was all said and done, you kind of left left the scene, and you didn't want to get involved afterwards until mm -hmm. people started contacting you. Does being anonymous in the situation, did that make you feel better about it, or you just wanted to stay out of it altogether? Well, here was the thing. I didn't, I didn't want to be involved from the media aspect of quote-unquote hero. I just, you know what? I am perfectly satisfied being a hero to my kids, and maybe to my wife and maybe to some of my clients i don't i didn't need that i didn't feel like i wanted and i didn't need the, the recognition for it that was number one and then once i did get outed by the judge i was worried that i was going to be seen as taking the credit for something that there was definitely one other guy that helped me I, as far as i know they, there was never any mention of him but I didn't want to make it sound like I was the only one mm -hmm. uh, who went down there. There was probably 15 people standing there, and me and one other guy went down to the car. I didn't want it to seem like I was making myself out to be something more than I actually was from the situation. I wasn't the only person to stop, and I wasn't the only person to go down to the car and uh, get, to, get those people out. And I felt like the way... The media was addressing it. They were trying to make me out to be the hero, and I didn't want to accept that version because it wasn't totally true. Mm -hmm. And so when you tell over the story, you're kind of calm about it. I mean, it is 13 years later, mm -hmm. but what emotions were going through your head at the time? I mean, you, you had to have been, you know, full of this adrenaline. There was definitely fear that was overcome by the sense that I could... I was in a position to help somebody not die and it didn't look like anyone else was going to going to do anything about it. So, yeah, I was I was afraid about a lot of it, but uh I also felt like I was put in this position and I would real if somebody if if there were people that were alive in that car and they burned up because everyone was on their cell phone hoping that the police were going to get there in time and I had a chance to do something and didn't do it, then I really would be thinking about it 13 years later right and i want to end off with one question have you grown since do you reflect on that story and on, on what happened and how you reacted to that story and do you look at yourself and say you know i can really be strong in certain situations and then apply that to today yeah of course that i i um and you don't need something like that to happen to like find your inner strength I mean there's things that you can uh, find out about yourself in a lot more subtle ways 
but that was yeah I definitely have grown since then and that was early 2006 late 2006 uh, my wife uh, was diagnosed with some kind of mass in her lung we went through an x-ray it led to uh, lung surgery open biopsy to see whether she had lung cancer or not and if she did there was going to be a five uh, percent chance that she would live five years that was scary any fear i felt of a burning car was nothing compared to the fear i felt when my wife was possibly very sick which was the same year but i see things differently now uh, than i did 13 years ago i've grown as a person uh, a lot i have a lot more faith in god and um, for whatever reason uh, god put me in the position at that moment to have that challenge and who knows why it doesn't take that kind of throwdown to, to to find your inner strength you can find it every day in tackling things you don't really want to deal with or dealing with people that are difficult or just getting to challenging situations and getting through it just knowing it, it all comes from the good and the bad all come from the same place and all work towards the same end so once you learn that in your life, which I don't think I knew in 2006, but I think looking back, I, I know it now. Yeah, I mean, I do, I do look at it, uh, I look back on it in terms of, you know, what are you capable of mentally, putting fear aside, and it, it happens every day. I have to do it every day at work. There's fearful situations where you could get embarrassed, or situations where you could lose, or situations where you could have someone angry with you, uh, whether it's an opponent or a client or a court, and you just can't be afraid. You have to go through life uh, doing the best you can, ethically as you can, and not fear negative outcomes. Because if you fear negative outcomes, you'll never leave your house. Right, I was just gonna ask you, how could people learn from this story? But I think that's a perfect, perfect lesson to take away that even if even if there's a situation where there can be an overwhelming fear or embarrassment, mm -hmm. you know, you can really dig down and find that inner strength. Mm -hmm. So, And you listen, people shouldn't be stupid. I mean, if there's something that's dangerous and you're not equipped to deal with it, then you should make sure that, that the only alternative is to take the dangerous action. You know, and this was one of those situations where I didn't think there was any alternative for the people in the car. There was an alternative for me, but there wasn't any alternative for them. I took the dangerous alternative. That's an extreme example. If you're afraid of bad outcomes in anything you do, fearing an outcome is almost making you predestined to have a negative outcome. If you let fear run it, you've got to use the fear or what you would call apprehension or anxiety to help you prepare, help you see scenarios, help you anticipate challenges and you'll get you'll get the result you're supposed to have. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time. It really means a lot to me. My pleasure. Each episode here on the Maverick Mondays podcast is about 30 minutes long. At the end of each episode, we briefly recap and highlight some of the important points discussed. Here are some great takeaways from our conversation. Michael's humility is extremely admirable. He kept downplaying the events as if to say it was completely normal. However, all of us know, and I'm sure he knows, running across the highway, the equivalent of three football fields, and saving three people out of a burning car is, is no average feat. Michael also pointed out that you don't need something like that to really unlock and awaken inner strength for other situations. 
Yes, of course that helps, but you don't have to wait for something like that to happen and you don't have to go out searching for those kind of situations. We all possess that kind of inner strength. We just have to summon it. Additionally, we all have these kinds of situations that present themselves. We all have our own version of the burning car. But what do I mean by that? Every day, every week, all the time, we have these situations where challenges arise and we have to come face to face with reality and make the decision. Are we gonna face the car that's burning, save our victims, or are we gonna turn the other way and keep driving and leave them to perish? If there's one thing that we can take away from this story with Michael Goldberg, it's how we all have that inner strength to overcome what's necessary and to step up when necessary. And lastly, going back to Michael's humility, if you look up the definition of a hero, a hero is a person who is admired or idolized for courage, outstanding achievements, and noble qualities. Michael specifically did not want to be admired or idolized by the public. And I almost feel bad releasing this episode. However, I feel that it's so important to take away these lessons that we all have our own hero inside of us. Just because we don't don a cape and we don't save people out of burning cars or burning buildings doesn't make us any less of a hero. If we're doing what's right and if we possess courage, outstanding achievements, and noble qualities. Thank you for joining us.